Jonah this evening as we make our way through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation on Sunday evenings. Verse 1 of chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, so we'll stop right there. Uh, the book of Jonah is probably uh, the best known book, uh, at least by title, uh, in all of, uh, of the Bible and all of the world, uh, simply because even people who are absolutely unfamiliar with the Bible have typically heard uh, the story of Jonah being swallowed by the great whale. We don't know that it was a whale. We'll speak about that when we get to it, but that's how um, it is uh, brought forth within, within our culture. There's a great deal more to the book of Jonah than just a man who was swallowed by a whale and, uh, or a great fish existed for three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish and uh, to live and continue his ministry. And it is the greater lesson that we want to look at um, in these next couple of weeks as we study uh, the book. The Holy Spirit tells us a little bit about Jonah, so it must be important for us to uh, know his name means dove, uh, and uh, he'll grow into that, but he wasn't quite a dove as yet. We're told that he was the son of Amittai, uh, which means uh, true to God, and uh, probably indicates that he was raised in a, in a godly family and uh, a godly home. The name uh, of the prophet Jonah is identical with a prophet that is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, who prophesied during the days of Jeroboam II, uh, the king of Israel. And it is almost certainly uh, the same Jonah that's being referred to uh, there, given the uh, identical father's name that is given. It would be one thing, it could readily be uh, two Jonas that were being spoken of, but two Jonas that were the son of Amittai uh, pretty much narrows things down. The reason that that's important is it helps us understand the timing of this book and the context of what it is, the, the situation that uh, Jonah was prophesying uh, into and called to prophesy uh, into. Is a time uh, probably putting his ministry somewhere between uh, 782 BC and uh, 753 BC. It was a time in which the northern kingdom of Israel was at the uh, zenith of its uh, uh, wealth, the height of its prosperity as the northern kingdom of Israel. And for context within our minds, for the chronology of how it fits in the Old Testament, uh, he ministered some 200 years after the death of King David, uh, 30 to 50 years before the uh, uh, Assyria's overthrow of the uh, northern kingdom of Israel as an instrument of God's judgment against them, and then about 100 years before they themselves were uh, ultimately conquered by the Babylonians in 626 B.C. This also helps us to uh, understand that Jonah was from uh, Gath-Hefer, the, the passage that is given in the historical book. And uh, Gath-Hefer is located in the northern region uh, of Israel, up in the area of uh, the Galilee, uh, near Nazareth, a town uh, uh, in the area of the land that was allotted to Zebulun. The reason that that's interesting to take note of is you might remember when the religious leaders rejected Jesus' claim to be the Messiah on the basis of the fact that no prophet of Israel ever came from Galilee, ever came from the north. And it was an oversight on their part. They overlooked Jonah as a prophet. He did come from the north and uh, in, in his uh, prophetic uh, ministry. His contemporaries were uh, probably Joel, Amos, and Hosea. 
and he prophesied during the days when uh, Assyria was expanding their kingdom to ultimately become uh, a world uh, ruling empire, and they were becoming a military threat, not only to the northern kingdom of Israel, but a military threat to uh, the entire world. They were certainly at this time Israel's primary uh, enemy at the time. Jesus uh, spoke of Noah, uh, Jonah rather, twice in his public ministry. First as a picture of his own death, burial, and resurrection, uh, that he would be buried for three days and three nights. The idea is three days and three nights alone, and then uh, he would be resurrected from that, that condition. Jesus said, no sign will be given uh, to this evil and adulterous generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You might remember that Jesus also reminded the Jewish religious leaders of his day uh, that even the barbarous, as, as we'll see, uh, Assyrians repented uh, to a message of pure judgment delivered to them uh, by God through a prophet when uh, they at the time of Jesus were refusing to repent and accept a far more gracious gospel and a, a, a message in a far more gracious, gracious messenger in Jesus himself. Matthew chapter, 20, 12, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And the marvel of that we'll see as we continue through the book. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here speaking of himself. And this book of Jonah is very, very important. It's always important to God's people, but it's certainly very important for us as Christians living in the age in which we live, living in the country in, in which we live, and, uh, and here you have uh, a world that we live in, a nation that we live in that's just so uh, hell-bent in its pursuit of sin, so hell-bent and blasphemous in its uh, rebellion against God, its rejection uh, against God. And because of it, it can really be a challenge to us as Christians not to develop a them versus us uh, mentality with them or uh, uh, to be willing to deliver the gospel to this generation, to deliver the gospel, uh, God's message to uh, this world that so desperately needs it, but then to fail to deliver the message in tune with God's heart. And this is the great lesson that Jonah is going to uh, need to learn, that it takes an accurate message that needs to be delivered, but if we are not delivering God's message uh, in, in alignment and reflecting His heart for those that we're delivering the message to, then it will uh, not be as effectual as it, it ought to be. We certainly won't represent the Lord in the way that He wants uh, us to represent Him. So we won't rush through this. And you say, you don't rush through anything, but we really won't rush through the book of Jonah on, uh, related to this. You notice uh, in verse 2, look at that. Uh, it, it reads, Arise, as the Lord speaks to Jonah, and uh, as the word came to him, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And so God commands, He commissions Jonah. It is a very, very simple commission made up of three things. He was to arise, he was to go to Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and he was to cry out uh, against it, cry out against their wickedness and inform them that God had taken note of their wickedness and uh, to inform them of God's displeasure with it. The message that Jonah would ultimately proclaim to them, we'll see in chapter 3, verse 4, uh, is uh, yet 40 days and 
and Nineveh shall be overthrown or destroyed. That's the message that Jonah carried from one end of uh, Nineveh to the other. So a very, very straightforward command, one, two, three, that he gives uh, to him. There's no wheel within a wheel. Uh, There aren't seven heads with ten crowns and uh, some of this more obscure imagery that's found in the Bible that you got to work at to figure out a little bit. Uh, Anybody can understand what it is that God tells him to do here. And then in verse 3, we have Jonah's response to the command of God. But Jonah arose, and that's the only one of the three Uh, commands that he obeys, is that he arose. Jonah arose uh, not to go to Nineveh, but to flee to Tarshish, and to do so from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, went down into the ship to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so, uh, you would have thought if you were just reading this, And uh, as we're going to see uh, Jonah's uh, great dislike, to put it mildly, uh, of the people of uh, Assyria and of Nineveh, the the atrocities that they were uh, committing even at that time, greater atrocities would follow. You would have thought that Jonah would have dropped everything and made a beeline to Nineveh to deliver this message. To say to God, God, thank you that you have given me this message. I'm your man to deliver this news to Nineveh. I cannot wait. And then almost inexplicably, we find out why as the book continues, he doesn't want any part in that commission. In fact, he heads in exactly the opposite direction because he knew Uh, something about God uh, that might mess their destruction up. As we'll see, he was uh, doubting the grace of God if they would repent that God would pull the punishment off uh, uh, of them. And so he flees to Tarshish. He goes to the uh, Israeli seaport of Joppa, finds a boat going there, pays the fare, settles in for the journey. And the problem with that is that Nineveh was 550 miles straight inland from where he was, the direction that he ought to have been going in. Uh, Tarshish is 2,500 miles in the opposite direction uh, by sea, right across the Mediterranean Sea uh, in in southern Spain. And so he's deliberately putting 3,000 miles between himself and God's call upon his life. And he figures, if I can only get to Tarshish, then uh, I'm not going to be in any danger of being the Jewish prophet of all of the Jewish prophets to deliver a message to the people of Nineveh that they might repent upon hearing and then have their judgment turned away from them. He doesn't want that stigma attached to him. And he knew that God was so gracious that he might even be willing to forgive the uh, uh, Assyrians if they would repent. And so he's fleeing. Uh, all of uh, all of this, and uh, uh, to safeguard against it, he goes to Tarshish, puts that distance. This means God will have to choose somebody else. At least I I'm not going to be involved in that. And you imagine here, I think you have to go to Israel and uh, and 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 fall in love with the land yourself, even on a, a, a pilgrim's tour. You fall in love with the land itself. But imagine how it, what a Jewish person feels toward that land. And, and here you have this born and raised in Israel Jew, and he's willing to put himself in a lifelong exile in order to escape this assignment. I mean, he's very, very serious about what he's, he's doing here. Now, Nineveh can take many, many forms uh, in in our lives. And what Nineveh represents to us is it relates to uh, this whole account in terms of an application for our lives. It just simply represents any area in our life in which we do not want God's will to prevail. 
And we don't want God to have full control over that area of my life. I want to maintain control of that area of my life. I don't want to entrust it to Him, and I don't want to entrust it to His uh, will, where we will obey God everywhere else in our lives, but we won't accept His will in this one area. It can sometimes be in the area of our singleness. We determine that we've enough being single as a a Christian person. I'm going to determine to to, uh, get married one way or another, whether it's God's will uh, or or not at this time, or whether this is the right person, whether they're a, a Christian or not. It can be in our own marriages where I refuse to accept God's commandments related to the roles within a Christian marriage, refusing to stay committed in a marriage, and uh, when we have no biblical grounds for abandoning that marriage. It can also involve the raising of of our children, and, and God calls on us to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And we read what God has to say about raising uh, His children, our children, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And we say, that seems very severe to me. We know a lot more about child-rearing today than when when God wrote the Bible. And so I agree with, I'm I'm not saying that. I'm just saying people think that. And uh, it just got deathly quiet there for a moment, and it frightened me. But where a parent can look and say, um, I agree with 70% of what he says, but the 30% is, it, it appears to be too extreme uh, to me. I don't agree with it, and I won't do that. And on and on the list can go in our lives in terms of the friends that we choose, in terms of how we spend uh, our time, in terms of the di- kind of work we put in uh, at, at the place that we work in, how and where we spend our money, our choices in entertainment, where we kind of, uh, I'll agree to everything you ask of me, God, but in this one area, and usually it's the area that costs us the most personally, now I will not turn that over to your will. And I will flee to Tarshish, if necessary, uh, to avoid that uh, in my life. And so it's that place where His will and my will conflict, but I'm unwilling to release that area to Him uh, to trust Him there. There could be a lot of reasons for that. It can be very uh, noble reasons, so to speak, and ignoble reasons. Uh, Jonah's probably concerned, uh, perhaps concerned is a better word, for his reputation. Again, not wanting to go down in the annals of uh, prophets in the history of uh, of, uh, of Israel to be the one that delivered a, a message that produced the repentance for a generation among the Assyrians when the Assyrians would ultimately destroy uh, the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. It could be his own sense of justice. I don't want to go there. They might repent. You might have grace on them, God. That won't be just. And, and he's a strong man. And sometimes strong men and women have a very strong sense of justice. And he, and he doesn't want to uh, jeopardize that. But as we'll see, even Jonah comes to learn that uh, to uh, do that is always to forsake our own uh, mercies when we fail to turn that area of our life over. Now, we're told that his intent was to escape uh, the presence of the Lord. Now, since the Lord is present everywhere all at once, it's known as the omnipresence of God, uh, this is um, an exercise in futility. Uh, No one can escape the presence of God, no matter where you want to go. And uh, 3,000 miles from where I'm supposed to be, and uh, God is there. And uh, so you say, I'm going to escape the call of God, the purposes of God for my life. I'm going to pack up the U-Haul van and move to another part uh, of the United States of America. You unpack the van. You put all of the things up on the shelf, sit down on the couch, and God goes, hey, buddy, how's it going? (laughs) I mean, there's just no escaping him. Uh, It's an impossibility. And uh, in any way, it isn't likely, though, that Jonah was attempting to escape uh, the omnipresence of God in taking this trip. 
is very, very well aware of the fact that it is impossible to escape the presence of God in the way that we think of, of omnipresence. When he, in chapter 2, uh, for a future time, when he gets into crying out to the Lord, he repeatedly quotes in his prayer to the Lord from the Psalms. He's very familiar with the Psalms. And, uh, and, and, and remember, he's in the, uh, the belly of a great fish. He doesn't have a concordance out and a Bible and a scroll and all of this to read off these. These are things that were a part of his, his heart. And, and uh, no student of the Psalms would not be aware of David's Psalm 139 speaking of the impossibility of outrunning God or escaping his, uh, his, uh, his presence. And... Uh, and later we're going to see Jonah spoke to the sailors on the boat. I'm a Hebrew. I fear Jonah, the God of heaven, uh, which hath made uh, the sea and dry land. He didn't have any, any inkling in his mind uh, that he could outsail the presence of God. What, what Jonah was attempting to escape was his prophetic calling. He is resigning. Uh, he is resigning his office and God's call upon his life uh, as a prophet, his ministry. Both Elijah and Elisha, uh, prophets of the Old Testament, they spoke of their prophetic ministries in this exact same uh, terms. Uh, each of them declared of themselves, as God liveth before whom I stand. And uh, uh, the Old Testament king, good king uh, Hezekiah, he spoke to the priests in his day, and he said, my sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him. And so for the prophet and the priest, the presence of the Lord represented the nearness of God that they experienced while engaged in their prophetic calling. What an individual feels between them and God, experiences between them and God in operating in that calling and operating in that office and gifting. And so he's quitting. Uh, he is retiring. He doesn't want to ever experience uh, the, that uh, unimaginable dynamic that was happening and happens between a prophet in the Old Testament and God. He doesn't want to even experience that ever again in his life if it means delivering this message to the Assyrians uh, in, in Nineveh. He is done with uh, this office and calling as a prophet. It's interesting to realize that this is the only instance on record of a prophet uh, refusing to obey God's calling uh, in the Bible. So if you are a Jewish person and you are reading here the book of, of Jonah and you're familiar with the Old Testament, we're familiar with the Old Testament, we go through it on Sunday nights, you realize how, uh, how extraordinary what Jonah is doing here. Uh, it's unprecedented in terms of the record. And, and yet he, uh, he does it. And, he, and he's not new to this uh, uh, prophet business. Wasn't a rookie. He, he had been a prophet for a long time. And yet he says, if this is what it means, I retire. So it raises the question, I think, of why. Why this, I don't care. I'm not going to do what God calls me to do, kind of disobedience that he is demonstrating here. But some, you might conjecture in, in, uh, that he, he was a coward that he didn't uh, want uh, to do that. I mean, it would be like you take a nice uh, Jewish prophet and uh, you send him to Nineveh to preach on behalf of the God of the Jews, and Nineveh has great hostility toward the rest of the world. It would be like sending a Christian missionary uh, into Afghanistan in its present condition, and I'm going to go there as a Christian representing uh, the God of the Bible and declare this message. Well, it, would, it has the potential to be a very dangerous situation, but that's not why he refuses to go there. He's not a coward at all. We're going to see later that he calls upon the sailors of the boat that he's on 
to throw them in to quiet the end of the sea, to quiet the storm that they're in. So he's not a coward. He doesn't fear death, not one bit. So you look and you say, well, is he this kind of a narrow-minded religious bigot uh, who hates any and all Gentiles? He considers them dogs and doesn't wish to, uh, uh, any of them to know God. And that can't be the case either because, again, he tells the Gentile sailors who are going to throw him overboard in order to silence the storm in, in, in just a few verses. Uh, he tells them to do that because he's concerned for them. He's concerned for their physical well-being and, and for uh, their lives. And so he is very merciful uh, toward them, concerned for their welfare. Jesus, uh, Jonah fled because he didn't want to preach a warning message to Nineveh about their well-deserved destruction. Spoiler alert here. Unless they repent, uh, lest they repent, and God then showed them mercy. Jonah hated the Assyrians. He hated the atrocities of the Assyrians. And if God didn't hate them, well, he should. Now, the Assyrians were very easy to hate in, in those days. And we know they're peaceful, loving people today. And uh, everywhere that we uh, see them, so we don't hold their heritage against them anymore than you hold those uh, peaceful, gentle uh, Scots and Irish in my heritage uh, against me. And, and, um, uh, but the Assyrians, when they would come in and uh, uh, conquer a, a nation or conquer a city, uh, in order not to deal with a large native population that they would leave behind. They would just simply slaughter mass numbers uh, of people. Uh, they uh, were, wasn't unknown to them as a part of their uh, punishment of any peoples that would resist them uh, to reach their hand right into a person's mouth and pull their tongue out uh, by its uh, roots or to put somebody out, stake somebody out on the ground or upon a wall, and then while they're alive, uh, skin them inch by inch, remove the skin off of their bodies, and then to take that skin and to wallpaper the walls of the city in order to put fear in the nations and the cities that they were yet to come to to conquer in order that they would not resist uh, the might of the Assyrian uh, uh, Empire. And, uh, and so you could go on really all evening talking about these kind of atrocities and, and more in terms of their, their cruelty. And all of this was very well known in the ancient world. And so it would be like picking up the newspaper or going online and reading about a nation in the world that is committing atrocities on a par with this everyone would be aware of how dangerous uh, this group of people are, and then they would immediately measure how far away from us are they, and what is the likelihood they will come to our city and our nation. Everybody was aware of the Assyrians in, in this, uh, this way, this monster that was rising up on the world scene and then just threatening everyone with their, their cruelty and barbarity. And, uh, and in Jonah's mind, it was good that God had noticed uh, their wickedness and it was good that he intended to destroy them. That's what they deserved and it's what everybody in the world uh, wanted and there's no sense in risking this uh, judgment uh, at the hands of God with any warning. Uh, even a warning of judgment. Just, just wipe them out in silence. Don't give them a warning. Nothing is worth taking a risk on that, that judgment falling upon uh, Nineveh. And so, uh, off to Tarshish he goes out of his uh, hatred for the wickedness of the Assyrians and then out of a love for uh, God's people. Well, if there was in verse 3, but Jonah arose to flee, there is another but here in verse 4, and that is, uh, but God sent out a great wind on the sea, as this ship is now out in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea, and there was a mighty tempest there uh, on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. 
I don't like to be on ships in general, uh, period, uh, on glassy water. Uh, but when you're on a ship here now where the storm is so great that it's about to break up the ship, I mean, that's a, that's a queasy kind of uh, uh, feeling there related to things. That's a tremendous, tremendous storm that is uh, occurring. The boat is being, literally in language, is being uh, hurled. And then the mariners, probably Phoenicians, we don't know for sure, but probably these are very experienced seamen. Then the mariners were afraid. This is a storm that makes not landlovers like me afraid, but people that make their living on the sea afraid. And every man of the crew and, uh, uh, cried out to his God, and they then threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. Nobody made that decision lightly. Uh, that's why you had a boat that had been entrusted to you to captain, or you had hired that uh, boat was in order to carry that merchandise from one city to the next. And so they so fear for, for their own lives and the future of the ship, they throw out uh, anything, uh, the entire load that they were carrying in order to Im improve their uh, odds of surviving it. And Jonah, he went down into the lowest part of the ship. He laid down, and he was uh, fast asleep. <laughs> I'd love to sleep like that again. <laughs> now a cricket has me awake at two in the morning, you know. So there's something in Ecclesiastes about that, by the way. So he's gone down into the lowest part of the ship, lays down, sound asleep, and he is completely at peace with his decision that he, he has made. And the mariners come, and the captain, and they wake him up, verse 6. So the captain came to him and said to him, uh, uh, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise and call on your God. Try that on your uh, teenagers and children next Sunday, getting them up for church in the morning. Uh, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise and call on your God. But they rebuke him. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. This is not only a case of all hands on deck. This is a case of all gods on deck. Any, we're all praying to whatever God we recognize to be God to deliver us from uh, this situation. Any one of them might do it individually. If they can arrange it collectively, then fine. But we're in a, a, a really, a really bad place here. And of course, it's always a, embarrassing to have a pagan uh, tell a child of God to, uh, to pray and to act spiritual in the middle of a crisis, but they do. And so they recognize that this, this uh, great storm is, is not a, a natural storm. This is, this is uh, some God that is involved in this storm. And so they said to one another, come and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, even for the Jewish people in the Old Testament, uh, casting lots was not forbidden. We don't cast lots in the New Testament because we have the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us in terms of our decision-making. But God would honor the casting of lots to make. It was one of the ways that He made His will known uh, to His people in the Old Testament. And He certainly did that here, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to Him, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I mean, they give them the third degree. Uh, tell us, what in the world are you about? And who are you? And what have you done to make God so angry? And, and they're launching questions at him from every direction. And he answered and he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear uh, the Lord. I bet it was a little hard for him to say that at the moment. Uh, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So here he is. He is Jewish. He's dealing with Gentiles, idolaters. He can't really speak to them about being the God of Yahweh or Jehovah, the God of, uh, of the Jewish Scriptures. He can't speak to them in those terms. 
they weren't conversant in it. So he speaks to them of God as the creator of the heavens and the earth, the creator of the seas and the dry land. Now, most often when we talk about, uh, 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 use the term about the seas and dry land, we talk about God being the God of the land and seas. But he reverses it here because that's where they happen to be at the moment, and they are sailors. And he let them know, I'm the God of the seas that we're on the middle, in the middle of here uh, uh, right now. And then the men were exceedingly afraid. And, uh, and this didn't help them at all in terms of fear. And they said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So it's always embarrassing when pagans, and I use the term affectionately, but when, when people other than Christians are more um, uh, loyal and, and more faithful to their gods, which are not true, uh, than we are at times to our God who is the true and the living God. And they would never ever have thought of doing against their idols, which were make-believe, Uh, 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 doing what Jonah was doing against his God, the true and the living God. They were uh, appalled that he would uh, uh, treat the Lord in that way. And so then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us because the sea was growing more tempestuous? Well, if it was already ready to break up into pieces, uh, before, and now it's getting more tempestuous, I mean, things are, are pretty serious. So they asked Jonah, just like any of us might do, listen, this is obviously your God that's doing this. We don't know anything about your God. You're an expert in your God. You're the greatest expert on your God that is on this ship right now. You don't follow him very well, but you know him better than we do. What do we have to do in order to turn this situation around? What's the solution to this as it relates to to your God? And then uh, Jonah said uh, uh, to them, please spare my life, please don't throw me. No, that's not what he did at all. He's again, picture of calm. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. And then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. He knew it, that this was all God working in, in, in his life. Well, these men, very commendable here in verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to try to return to land, uh, but they couldn't, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. And so there's no way God's going to let them get back to land. But here they are, they don't want to throw Jonah overboard, even though they, he has confessed that he is the cause of all of their problems and that their lives have been put at risk because of the decision that he's made. So here is Jonah who doesn't care uh, one bit about 600,000 Assyrians that live in the capital city of Nineveh, and these men uh, are concerned about uh, the life of a single man that is on their ship. And, and, uh, and again, it is so uh, embarrassing so often how often uh, someone who is not saved has a greater compassion uh, upon, uh, uh, upon uh, people, an individual, the value of life and so forth than sometimes even, uh, even we have. They knew that to throw him overboard uh, from the ship, that that would be the death of him, especially in a storm like this. Uh, there was no, uh, you know, uh, lots of boats going up and down in some kind of a trade route or the Coast Guard that could be called. This would mean the death of him, and they didn't want, uh, they didn't want that uh, to, uh, to happen here. They didn't want that blood, so to speak, on, on their hands. And therefore, they cried out when they realized they, they had to do what it was that Jonah said would bring this, the storm to an end. They cried out to the Lord and they said, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. You know we're innocent. Whatever's going on between you and him, you know we are, we are fringe characters in this. 
And then additionally, don't charge us with his innocent blood when we throw him now uh, overboard. Uh, uh, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah, they threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from uh, its raging. That must have been quite a moment uh, to be there on that. And, uh, and then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now, it isn't unlikely that they came to believe and worship in the God of the Jews, in uh, Jehovah and Yahweh, as a result of this experience. And uh, earlier on in the passage, they are worshiping and crying out to their gods. Now they shift gears and they cry out to the Lord, and they even offered Him a sacrifice and took vows to Him. And one of the reasons that it isn't unlikely is that this doesn't look to be a foxhole conversion on their part. Uh, you might uh, have experienced in your own life, we're all aware of what it is when a person uh, cries out to God and says, God, if you get me out of this, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And, uh, and that cry is made, and then as soon as the deliverance occurs, it goes, wow, that was sure lucky. And then we just go on w with our life and, uh, and, uh, and never pay the vow that, was, uh, that we made to the Lord. And, uh, but here is a situation where um, the uh, miracle occurs. They already have the miracle. And then uh, following the miracle, then they offer their vows and their sacrifice to God. They didn't just go on about their business. Something real had happened um, in, in their lives as a result of this. And if Jonah thought he was getting uh, away with anything here uh, and thought things couldn't get worse, they're about to get a lot worse. Verse 17, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah and uh, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and uh, for three nights, and we'll pick all of that up uh, next time. This, this first chapter of the book of Jonah is really an anatomy of a backslide. And uh, so let's see what there is to learn here in that regard so that we might learn the importance of, of avoiding a backslide in our own lives, how to recognize a backslide that is going on in our lives, and what to do if we are backslidden. And it's a very, very practical lesson here. The first thing that we notice is that in verses 3 and 5 that, that disobedience always leads down in life. And you see the repetition here. In verse 3, Jonah goes down to Joppa uh, in, escape, in an endeavor to escape God's will. In verse uh, 3, uh, again, he goes down into the ship. In verse 5, he goes down into the lowest parts of the ship. Then in verse 15, he goes down into the sea, and ultimately he's going to go down into the, uh, the belly of this great uh, fish. I always think about Jonah when I'm on the uh, Alice in Wonderland ride at Disneyland, and uh, there's that section that goes down, 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 and uh, that's exactly what, what he was doing in, in, uh, in his life. And this reminds us that no plan uh, for our lives is better than the one that God has planned for us. And no matter how hard it is to live the life that He calls us to, to be faithful to the ministry that He's called us to, to realize there's always, uh, to refuse that and to go away from it is always to go from something uh, infinitely higher to something that is, is uh, much, much lower. You think about how the Apostle Peter, the Apostle uh, John, the Apostle Paul, all of these men and then women in the Bible who serve God at great expense to themselves. And, uh, it, it, and, it, and they paid a tremendous price to be faithful to God's call upon their life. And I, and I know that not a single one of them would complain about uh, that or have any regrets about being faithful to God's uh, commandments uh, today. And so God's will is exactly as Paul describes it, 
In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it is good and it is acceptable and it is perfect. And to uh, defy His will in my life is to always move from good, acceptable, and perfect. And since good and acceptable and perfect is as good as it can get, it is always to settle for something uh, far less in terms uh, of our lives. Second, we learn in verse 3 that favorable circumstances do not make uh, disobedience to God's commands okay. And, and we notice that when Jonah goes to Joppa to flee God's call, uh, he found a boat that was going exactly where he wanted to go, and that is to Tarshish. And the Hebrew word that is used for found here, uh, it can mean to find as a result of a search, but equally it carries the meaning of to find accidentally, to discover, to happen upon. And uh, the same way that we can use the word in both ways in, in our vocabulary uh, today. I think that sometimes Christians will mistakenly think that uh, these kind of coincidences or favorable circumstances mean that what they're doing is okay, that uh, our disobedience is okay. And we look at this and say, I mean, what a stroke of luck. What good fortune. Uh, what are the odds of me finding a boat? I in short order like this, headed right to Tarshish. I mean, as, as far as you can get away from the land of Israel and be in the civilized uh, world. And so the circumstances were lining up so nicely, it must mean that God is somehow uh, blessing him. His disobedience wasn't as, as bad as he thought it, uh, as he thought. But aligning circumstances do not change disobedience into obedience. Somebody can think, well, every single door opened for me to get this job as a bartender or as a drug dealer or every door opened for me to meet this man. And I know he's not a Christian, but if you knew the circumstances that brought us together, I mean, only God could have done that. And this is the kind of thing that is said regularly. And, uh, but it was wrong when Jonah did it. It is wrong in our lives. If it, is, if it is prohibited in God's Word, no circumstance can make it right. I remember when I was a fairly new Christian, and I was leading a home fellowship, uh, and I had no business leading a home fellowship, but I was leading, <laughs> they were risk takers, and uh, leading a home fellowship, and we would open up our time together, and, and anybody could share any praise reports or any uh, prayer requests that they had before we headed into uh, kind of the, the core uh, part of our, our time together. And I remember one time in particular, our worship leader in that home fellowship, he was so excited to share a, prayer, uh, a praise report. And he had gone uh, after work, uh, before he came to the home fellowship, he had gone to a su supermarket to buy some groceries before he went home. And when he came out of the s grocery store, as he was making his way to his car, he saw a cart, uh, a grocery cart that was full of groceries. And he looked at it and he said, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And he took it and he loaded it up in his car. And he's so excited, and all of us are completely mortified by it, because all we can picture is some 95-year-old woman that is inside the store uh, making a second call to make sure the dial-a-ride is coming to, to uh, pick her up and get her groceries. But it's a, a, a funny thing how we can uh, look at things and, and, uh, and see the circumstances line up and then assume that uh, it must be okay. Third, and in the same vein, we learn that God's will for our lives is uh, determined supremely by His commands and uh, not by our peace. Again, Jonah was the picture of peace down sleeping uh, below deck on that, on that ship. And the Hebrew word that's used for fast asleep, it means a very, very deep, deep sleep he was, he was in. And so no child of God should ever have a peace about disobeying God's commandments. And again, it, it, to illustrate how 
how frequent this kind of thing is. Very often a Christian will openly disobey God's Word, and then when they're confronted with their disobedience, they will declare, but I have a peace about it. And they've elevated that above uh, uh, the teaching of of the Word. And so they know that what they're doing is just absolute disobedience, and yet they've convinced themselves that they're the uh, exception because they have a peace about uh, compromising or disobeying uh, 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 the Bible. Examples that happen all of the time. I have a peace about marrying uh, an unbeliever, or I have a peace about a career decision that, uh, I, that will require me to compromise my Christian witness and, uh, and my Christian faith. I'll need to hide that uh, in, in this new job. Or very, very commonly, again, and I've heard this so many times through the years, uh, I have a peace about divorcing uh, my husband or my wife, even when there are no biblical grounds. The fourth thing that we notice and learn related to backsliding is that obedience in one area of my life doesn't make up for disobedience in another area of my life. You notice that Jonah was very careful to pay the fare in order to go to Tarshish. He's very deliberate about that, and yet he's in a a flat-out open uh, defiance of God and His Word, but he's careful to pay the fare. He's careful to obey in that. And this is another wrong idea that we can get into where we tell ourselves, well, I know I'm disobeying God in this area of my life, but I'm very, very careful to obey Him in all of these other areas of my life, and so surely this makes my disobedience okay. Surely God will accept that, and it's a a means of quieting our, our consciences where, for example, someone will think, I'm making uh, money, a lot of money, by compromising and cutting corners uh, in my business, and, uh, but I give a lot more uh, to the church, or I'm living a sexually immoral life, and, uh, and so I take extra care to make sure that I don't drink or use drugs or uh, swear or curse, thinking that somehow that's got to count for God in all of this. But God doesn't play the game, not with Jonah, uh, not with, with us. No amount of obedience in any other area of my life can make up for willful disobedience in another area of my life. It's a deception. And if I stay in that deception, it means some storm is coming into my life to rock me uh, out of that. Notice, too, that our disobedience adversely affects others. His disobedience didn't just affect himself, but it affected many uh, other people. His disobedience put Uh, the lives of these other mariners on the ship, put those lives uh, in jeopardy, the loss of their property as well, and and pulled other people into the consequences of his disobedience. And it is, this is very important because very often a person will deceive himself into thinking that my disobedience only hurts me. So we talk about a victimless crime today in our culture, and that's a crime that only hurts the person who commits the crime, as if the consequences of that crime stay uh, uh, isolated to that person, which is a folly. It's nonsense related to any crime or, uh, and certainly uh, any any, uh, sin. Always sin and disobedience hurts uh, innocent people, innocent people in all directions. It hurts then husbands, it hurts wives, employers, employees, neighbors, the reputation of God and the reputation of God's people within a a, a community and around the world. And it's always good for a Jonah, if we're in that place, to stop and to think about the price that everyone around me is paying for my disobedience and how much better their lives would be, how much better the lives of my children or my spouse or others that are around me, other relatives and friends would be if I were not living in disobedience in this area uh, within my life and being faithful to uh, God. And that allows us to uh, kind of... uh, uh, 
uh, comprehensively realize uh, how uh, destructive this, uh, this disobedience can be. And then in verse 10, notice that our disobedience harms our Christian witness before the world and before uh, unbelievers. In uh, uh, verse 6, the captain of the ship finds Jonah asleep in the midst of the storm, a storm that frightens uh, sailors. He awakens him, exhorts him to call upon his God to save them, and again, sad when a pagan exhorts a child of God to be uh, spiritual. And in verses 8 and 9, Jonah reveals to them the storm has, is because of his willful disobedience to God. And notice in verse 10, they were exceedingly afraid of this. They were mortified upon uh, hearing it. Why have you done this? And so these uh, uh, pagans understood the seriousness of disobeying God more than uh, Jonah understood it. Pagan or no pagan, they were more spiritual than Jonah at that, that moment in time. And so Jonah's willful disobedience, it marred his witness before the Lord. And what a great chance this would have been in the midst of a storm like this if uh, 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 Jonah uh, took and began to speak to them about the Lord and the importance of becoming a Christian in a storm like this, but he couldn't do it. Uh, because Jonah knew that their first thought would be, uh, we are more serious about obeying our God than you are. Why would we follow a God that produces followers like you? And so disobedience always shuts our mouth to sharing the gospel and sharing the truth of God with other people. It would be like being arrested as a Christian for shoplifting and attempting then to share the gospel with the store security. No one would take us seriously uh, in, in that regard. Notice too that our willful disobedience hinders our prayers. It hurts our ability uh, to pray. The captain of the ship called on Jonah to pray for the simple reason that he wasn't praying. Everybody else was praying, but he wasn't praying. And I, don't think, I think it was, was more than that he wasn't praying, that he couldn't pray. But why, why didn't he pray? Because he knew praying wouldn't do any good if he wasn't willing to repent. And he wasn't willing to repent. And so Jonah's not anxious to, to, to pray to God because he knew he wasn't right with God. Have you ever tried to pray uh, when you're not right with God? How's that prayer uh, work? It's about the most painful prayer we can pray in, in life. Ever been to like a, a family dinner or uh, a, a home fellowship or some other kind of gathering and someone uh, calls on you to, uh, you know, pray for something related to the meeting and uh, you've just, you know, yelled at your wife before you uh, came to the meeting and now you've got to pray. They've called on you. You can't explain all of that. And uh, I, I hope all of you have been in that kind of a situation. That is, that is one of the most painful prayers. You start praying for the people in Mongolia and praying for the people in South Africa. You pray for anything and everything. An hour later, you close it up on asking to, to bless the meeting. I mean, there's no life in, uh, in it uh, at all. And so it really, really uh, harms our prayer life. And then finally, what we learn here, and uh, here we move into chapter 2 just a little bit, get ahead of ourselves, that God is what we, what we learn related to backsliding in terms of the solution to it, is that God really is a God of second chances with repentance and confession of our sin. And here He's going to uh, repent and confess His sin. And God is going to restore him into his calling and into his, his place and God's plan in the world. And we can turn and be back in that kind of a relationship with God instantly at that moment. No matter how, uh, how far down we have gone in sin as Jonah did or how uh, deliberate our sin has been against God, with confession of sin and repentance, we can be restored uh, back into God's will, His good, acceptable, perfect will 
in our lives. And so, this thing, uh, you can be backslidden in the ministry. He's backslidden in the ministry. And, uh, and you can put backsliding with all kinds of little baubles on it to try and hide the fact that it's happening. But he was backslidden in what he was doing here. And tremendous insights into what it looks like and, and the consequences of it in our life. But most importantly, to turn from it. And now, as the worship team would come forward and the men would come forward, it is a perfect note to now partake of the Lord's Supper this evening, the symbols of Jesus' body and of His blood as we consider how good He has been to us, how gracious He has been to each one of us. Think about how patient and long-suffering. I can't, I can't speak to how patient and long-suffering He's been to you, only to me. And He has been every bit as patient and long-suffering with me as ever He was with Jonah. And so much to celebrate and to thank Him for this evening as we parter, prepare to partake uh, of the elements. And so let's celebrate His goodness to us, His faithfulness to us. As the men pass the, the elements, uh, don't partake yet. Uh, uh, we will pray together and then we will partake uh, together.